everyone, welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast and this time I'm joined by a couple of old friends. One of these old friends, we go, Paul, we go a long, long, long way back. Way back. Way back, like Perth back, back, back. 33 years back. Oh, why did you have to do that? <laughs> Come on. 33 years? Has it really been that long? Ellie, are you uh, even 33 yet? Uh, this year. This year. So we go back. This is an awesome way to start a podcast. We go back longer than Ellie's been alive. This is awesome. Ellie, welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast as a new host of the show. You must be thrilled Thanks. to be here. I am. I'm feeling super young, which is so lovely, um, given I feel so old at the moment. <laughs> no, it's super cool to be here. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to kind of un unpack all the kind of cool topics that are out there and um i'm really keen to start with uh with paul i won't go all the way back to the perth days uh probably to the deep dark history but I'll, I'll talk about really just some kind of formative stuff that happened kind of over the course of my life that kind of led to kind of where i am today so um lucky growing up in perth uh in a family actually who had a really strong orientation around technology um which was pretty cool um, my parents, um, you know, similar to, to Dave's uh, family, had a had a family business. We actually had uh, the last full service gas station in Perth, going way way back in the day. Um, but they invested really heavily in technology. Uh, they you know put in computerized uh, point of sale system and a bunch of other stuff at a at a pretty early time in their business and. You know, we had a computer at a pretty young age and, and things like that. So I, I started off on this journey pretty early around technology, which was, I, I didn't realize it until later, was like a very formative thing. Like started coding my own computer games at, you know, 11 and 12 years old um, from books and manuals and things like that when that was the thing that was done. And just like that, it piqued a lot of interest in technology. Um Fast forward a bunch of years, um, was in uni in Perth, uh, and I was at this uh, school called Murdoch University, and met, a, met and got to study with some really amazing, really interesting people, a lot of which were actually uh, originally from Singapore, which is, I know, where you're based. Um, but one of the people that was really formative in that whole uh, kind of journey um, was this guy, uh, Dr. Dwayne Varan. Um, he had an advanced program around marketing and the media that I got uh, introduced to in my third year of uni um, and got to like explore a lot of different technology at that point. And, and that really kicked off this kind of even deeper journey into technology, into software, software as a service, payments, a whole ton of other stuff. Um, but that was a really formative time that kind of like really triggered a very, very deep interest in, in technology. And I was, you know, at 19 and 20, was reading up on, you know, books like Crossing the Chasm and understanding things like Moore's Law and a bunch of other stuff, which was probably like not a very regular thing that most university students were doing in Perth at, at the time. Um, and that really then kind of just kicked off a technology career that's now spanned like the last 20-something years. Why? Well, I, I had no idea you gamed. You were building games and things. I knew you... Look, we used to play hockey together and, yep. and I knew your parents had a business and, and I share the same... You know, my dad was really into technology and, and what was your first computer, actually? Uh, it was the original Apple II. Yeah, see, me too. I had a feeling... It was a. I had a two, not the two, two C, 
I think it was a 2C. It was supposed to be compatible. It looked like a pizza box with a square on top of it. Yeah, yep. With the old black and green screen, that, that whole thing. A absolutely. And I, I remember like I, I sent away for a bunch of magazines and, and whatever else where I could code my own. Is that it? <laughs> Ellie's had to look it up. Yeah. Let's <laughs> see what we're talking about. It did look like a pizza. Yeah, no, that's an yeah. actual computer and it yeah. came with a floppy disk. And which computers do? You remember floppy disks, right, Ellie? Yeah, I do remember floppy disks, yeah. 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 Do you know how they... No. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, you could you could genuinely use the excuse back then that the computer crashed and I lost my entire assignment, which happened to me on numerous occasions because, yeah, even on an Apple, you had to type in... I had to type in run catalog to start the computer. And then when the Encyclopedia Britannica... Cyclopedia Compton's Multimedia Encyclopedia, bringing you the world on a disc. And it was the encyclopedia on a CD-ROM. It was like mind-blowing for yeah. us kids from Perth. So the first, the first computer you had, you had to code to enter. So you had to understand. No, what you were no, coding no. So, to enter? well, you had to use command line for for some stuff. You essentially had shortcuts and codes to kind of trigger certain events on, on the on the computer. Um, but it, it would run. It actually had its own operating system and, and stuff like that with a bunch of very, very basic, I call them apps, but they certainly were, they, they're no comparison, right, to the apps that we understand and know today. But they, there was still an underlying code structure to that computer that you could either use applications for or the stuff that I was doing in my case. Like I literally was like writing my own asteroid game or a tank game and, and stuff like that because... I don't know, to me at the time, it was super interesting. And then, so if you always... Because then at some point, I'm sure my dad said to me, oh, I saw Paul, he was doing something with point of mobile point of sale or mobile, like in a restaurant scenario, mobile payment things or something. Yep. Are you doing something to do with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, fast forward a couple more years, uh, I graduate from uh, Murdoch. I went and did a... Um, role, which was actually also really interesting. I, I worked for this technology uh, due diligence firm that essentially did um, all the research for venture capital companies. It was a small boutique firm in Perth, which got me even deeper into technology. But then what kind of I, I then jumped to is um, uh, a point of sale company, as you, as you point out, Dave. Um, and so they're a Perth-based company and they specialized in um, mobile POS for restaurants. And Ellie, this will be another thing that you probably don't remember. But this company was called Palm Tech, and it was called Palm Tech because uh, it was based pilot. on the Palm Pilot, right? Uh. Um, but what was really interesting about these guys, right, is that they built this pretty cool technology on uh, the Palm. And the, but the, the big thing about it, right, is that back then, again, when I was doing things, when you know chisel and stone was still technology products, um, uh, they you know Wi-Fi didn't exist. So we built our own radio frequency wireless network technology that this palm would sit in. So it would actually send the data from a handheld device back into the printer in the kitchen. So like we, we literally built a fully turnkey point of sale solution for restaurants and hospitality. And what was crazy about that, like this is, I joined that company in, I don't know, 2000 three or uh, something something along those those lines. Um, and it wasn't that long after that, 
um, that we were actually integrating a credit card payment on that handheld device. And this was like 2005. All built on Palm Pilots, all built on radio frequency. Um, but yeah, I was, I was doing that. I was with that company for about four and a, uh, five and a half, nearly six years. And is that the start of your whole working in fintech? Like that's a disruptive fintech there. Is, that, is this where it starts? Like do you have staff that you now work with and you go, well, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson of how I started out. Yeah, it's funny. So I, I, I still do the onboarding um, every two weeks for every single new employee that starts wow. at, uh, at Plaid, which is cool. It's an amazing way to you know, really continue to kind of stay connected with the team. And I've told that story a couple of times, and uh, I, at least I got a nodding head out of Ellie about what a, a Palm Pilot was. I've certainly had a lot of people legitimately ask me what a she, Palm Paul, Pilot actually Paul, she Googled was. it. Uh, I'm pretty she, sure, no, I'm pretty sure I know it from like older movies. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Which were on VHS. Most yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, look, in a lot of cases, um, so this company was called Palm Tech then. It's called Trinitech or something like that now because uh, Palm weren't very happy with us using their name. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it, it was that was totally the first entry into kind of payments and, and, and things like that, which we were, you definitely, if you go back in time, you would definitely call that company a fintech. At the time, we didn't feel yeah. very fintech-y. Um, but you know, it, that actually kind of, it, it, it forced me to understand some things that I really didn't understand, right? Which was cool. Like if, you know, before what, what I've been used to is like, okay, cool. This credit card gets swiped through a terminal, right? And it was done. Okay, cool. We're now building the terminal, right? And what has to happen with that? And more importantly, like when you collect all of that data off the, the magnetic strip on the card, what are you doing with it and where are you going with that and who are you sending it to and and more importantly especially because like that actually has data that you know bad nefarious people could use right is like you know how are you encrypting that data how are you managing that data at rest at transit and it it that it actually got me into a into a world of financial services and fintech that i have to admit i never planned on being in but i ended up in and it and again it was one of those things where it was so interesting that I just wanted to kind of dive deeper and further into that world. And it was, it was a cool, cool company to kind of get a start in from that perspective. And then before you got to Plaid, you spent a long time at Visa? I did. Had yep. to be that or MasterCard. I was like, geez, come on, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it one one, one, it's one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And what was interesting, so I, I, I was at the point of sale company, went to Salesforce for a bunch of years. Uh, and then ended up at, at Visa um, and really went there because I kind of couldn't get away from the urge and the interest to be back in financial services. Um, you know, I, I was watching really from the sidelines at Salesforce for a number of years, a lot of innovation that was starting to happen in financial services. Um, and I'm a big fan of like, look, go to the place that is like the center of that thing. Um, and Visa very much, like you think about, you know, what Visa does. And by the way, I didn't actually know enough about Visa, honestly, when I first started to really understand what it is that they do as a company. I certainly understand, understood, 
you know, they put, you know, there's a co-branded card in people's wallets and, and things like that. But when you really start to understand that as a company, sort of the infrastructure that they've built and the network that they've laid out on a global scale, it was really eye-opening to kind of be really at a company at, at the very center of financial services. Um, and it was, it was super, super interesting to kind of, you know, get a completely different view, completely different lens on the concept of a credit card transaction that I had a very nascent view of from that point of sale company, you know, many, close to a decade before. It's so interesting you talked about the infrastructure then because I'd never thought about it this way because now you're working for a disruptive fintech that I understand you can go into the details of how it works because I understand there would be infrastructure behind it. But you think of disruptive technologies like you know, earlier today, I was talking about like, you know, Telstra and where we all kind of grew up, you know, Ellie originally from, from, from Australia, from Sydney. And you talk about, you know, they're, they're never going to get displaced because they own the infrastructure, they own the landlines, they own the broadband network or whatever. And then, of course, you know, you fast forward and all of a sudden that's not as important as it needs to be in order to sustain a business. And so these traditional companies like Avisa have to keep innovating and it's just very interesting the window of opportunity that comes about with new disruptive technologies that come out. At, at this point, do you want to add to that or do you want to go into like, and this is how Plaid works? And I keep I like thinking that. it's played, by the way. So, but anyway. I'm, I'm glad we, we had a whole debate. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't know when's the right time to do this. Is it now? Because th- <laughs> it looks like Plaid to me. It's, can, it's I, can, I have a guess at, can I have a guess at why it's Plaid? Because yeah. Dave and I have had this conversation, so plaid to me was is fabric or, or like um a, a particular type of um uh, what do you call them? like the the Scottish look of of the yeah. tartan. Thank you. So after reading about your company, my thoughts were um, that that fabric in in essence is kind of like a woven type of fabric and kind of connect it, it connects across you know two different two different sections and so I when I was un- trying to understand what plaid was that was how I took it it was the kind of connector between yourself and a, and a, and a bank or or people in banks and, and and that's kind of where plaid came from do I get a gold star am I correct so for anyone who's just listening to the audio version of this right now Paul is sitting there <laughs> smiling like Ellie's just done, gone through orientation and got a hundred percent correct and they're both like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they obviously shared notes before uh, before Paul answers the question, the reason why I think it's played is because people need to get paid, right? So if we're playing the game of like she thinks it's a fabric and interconnected and that sounds all lovey-dovey, I think, you know, got to get paid, not mean. Got to get myself paid, so I've got to use played. What do you reckon? You can see why he needed me on this podcast, can't he? Which, he, is, the, he, which is the correct answer? He 100% needed you. Um, neither are correct. <laughs> Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the reason why I was like grinning like a Cheshire cat um, oh. is because Ellie's assumption presumption about uh, where the name came from is, is, is the assumption that every single person actually makes about the origin of the name of the company. Oh, damn it, I'm like everybody else. It's fun and it's funny because it comes up so, so many times. But um, so... The, the, the true story behind uh, the name of the company actually uh, goes all the way back to uh, the two co-founders, uh, uh, Zach Perret and, and William Hockey. You know, they were actually uh, out 
but like the, this, and this is the true kind of Silicon Valley story, right? Which is like the, what they call the pivot story. They, you start one direction and you, you, you kind of change to uh, a different product or a different solution. It's not the uh, friends pivot version. This is the technology pivot, pivot <laughs> version. Um, Great episode. <laughs> but uh, what, what it was, so, um, Zach and William were building a bunch of consumer related apps to begin with, because I like, thought that, that that was the thing that they were going to often do. A lot of the consumer apps that you see today, they were trying to build something that was similar to that. Um, and what they actually ended up finding when they were building their app is that the underlying data that they could get access to, um, it, it was very difficult to get that data. The quality wasn't that good. Um, the connectivity to it wasn't that good. There, there was just problems in getting accessibility to that data. Um, so they ended up actually writing their own bank integration to actually get the data out of a financial institution. So they actually, like, they built the thing uh, that now Plaid is to try and demonstrate the app that they were trying to then go get funding for. And what a lot of people kind of told them was, number one, um, the app that you're building isn't that great, but the, the infrastructure thing that you built is really good and we will totally pay money for that. But to get back to the kind of like where did the plaid piece came from? Well, what they did finally when they were able to get the data uh, out of one of these financial institutions is that they geo-plotted the data mm -hmm. um, for all of their transactions. And they were both based in New York at the time. So it was a kind of nice tight metro area that they were working with. And the pattern actually kind of created a plaid-like pattern uh, oh. overlaid onto a geo-map. Um, and that, cool. that is actually where the name originates from. I like mine better. <laughs> Can you just start with a different one? Hey, um, are you allowed to do that? You start you start a company by going into the banking infrastructure? That sounds to me like it's... um, like a You know, I've heard stories of some people starting companies accidentally and they did things that they weren't allowed to. And they did things. But I'm assuming this was legal. This is when the banking systems had to open up APIs and become you know, a little more decentralized. Is that the case? Well, there, there, there'd always been some banking infrastructure players who were accessing data through, you know, kind of some of the more, like, let's call it the, tr the traditional method of data access, which was this thing called screen scraping. Um, but, you know, for, for them, like they were accessing their own personal data at, at, at that point. So um, it, you know, from, from that standpoint, they were really kind of like, mapping their own transactions from from that perspective um so i wouldn't kind of put it into like the like the the bad category i put it into the like they wanted to kind of build something to try and demonstrate something else um but the outcome was a completely different company and a, and a bunch of different solutions which is actually pretty cool so can i ask <clears throat> i am definitely the human in the tech seeking human part of this because the screen scraping and the API, yeah, yeah, yeah. blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, what I'm interested about is, I mean, obviously, um, you know, banks are incredibly protective about their data. And obviously, as a consumer, you would like to think that your bank is very protective of your data. When, when you say you build, they build the infrastructure to extract that data, what, what, does, that actually, what does that actually mean? Awesome question. Um, so, like, the, the short and the sweet of it is, is, you know, we, we have built this technology that allows a consumer to say, hey, I've got some banking data in this location. And that could be um, my account number and what they call a routing number here, here in the US. Um, 
or I want the transactions that I've recently put through my credit card or my debit card. I want that data to show up somewhere else because there's an application that I want to use that I would get value from. Um, and so what it essentially means is that we've built the technology on which a consumer can say, hey, I want to permission access for my data into this different app so I can then go and use that app. Um, like, there's a ton of different examples in terms of the use cases and things like that, but to talk to a couple of them, number one is like, like there's a lot of folk who kind of get into say something like crypto investing, right? I want to go buy <clears throat> a Bitcoin, I want to buy uh, a Dogecoin, like whatever the coin is of, of your choice, etc. And you'll say, well, hey, look, I've got $100 in my bank account and I want to get a hundred of my dollars from that bank account over in uh, to something, an app like uh, Coinbase or Webull or Robinhood or something like that. Um, and like, if you think about like the way that you used to have to do that, it was a very protracted process. You would literally have to go through and um, do a thing like a wire transfer or a bank transfer, something that might take a long period of time. And so what we, we, we are essentially is that we're the data layer, the infrastructure layer that allows someone to take their data and in some cases their own funds from point A to point B so that they can use an app. So you're into, I'm so glad you, you eventually got to like Robinhood and a few others because when you went Bitcoin and crypto, I went, oh my God, I'm going to need another explanation for now what you're talking about. But I get it. It's fast transfer of the funds from one to multiple other accounts, whether whatever it is that you're transferring, but also you provide a high layer of visibility into yep. who has access, why they to have access, data. and where it's going. Exactly, um, and and that that I think one of the most important parts in all of that, right, is that it's the consumer themselves saying, "Hey, there's something that I have." that is in this location and I just want it in another place. Um, and you know, we, we've, we've always been really proud, right? That we're a consumer permission data platform. Like it literally is the person who is saying, hey, I, I've got this thing that I want uh, over there. And, and, it, and it's been amazing to see, right? Being here for, you know, the last, you know, 15, 16 years and particularly like the last five, like at, at Plaid, like seeing the innovation that is happening now that people have got portability of that data. It, it's like it's it's a pretty impressive place to be. Hey, you know the saying "cut out the middleman." Heard it. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't the bank or someone just go? Don't need it. Can't do it ourselves. It's, yeah, like a, it's, it's a leading question, but you know what I mean, right? Like every one of these opportunities opens up an opportunity for disruptive technologies. But then, when's the lifespan? How do you? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think it's one of those things where, um, and 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 by and by the way, like that, it's it's the build versus buy thing, and and I think probably nearly every company or every technology, right, has to think about answering that question either once or, or multiple times, right, throughout the, the company's history, and you know, similar to you know that 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 kind of vein of thinking, it's like, hey, look, what what are the banks good at? Right. And are the banks good at providing data infrastructure services 
or are they really good at providing banking services, home loan origination, mortgage origination as well, like auto, like all of these other things that are kind of core to their business. And you might argue that sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't, but that's also like the thing that also spurs on innovation, right? And again, like what, what companies come to rely on us for is, hey, look, we know that Plaid is this trusted partner. They can get accessibility to data and more, more than likely, like we can do pretty unique things with that data as well to kind of make the usage of that data, you know, even more applicable in, in someone's app or in the use case that they're working on. And the, the trade-off becomes like, can we do this ourselves or can we outsource that to someone who is infinitely more specialized in the things that we do? And, you know, we, we've got 7,000 plus customers today that have said, hey, we, we are totally willing to kind of um, outsource all of the complexity that's there so that we can truly focus on the innovation that we want in the app or the platform or the service that we're providing. Who's buying? Who are these customers? Like who's paying for the service and how are you charging for it? Awesome question. Um, so, you know, it's been an interesting journey over the last sort of five years that I've been here. And, you know, when I first started, um, the customer was, was another fintech similar to kind of what Plaid looked like. So we were working with, um, and we got to start working with, you know, a lot of these companies I just mentioned before, Robinhood, Coinbase, uh, Chime, Venmo, Acorns, etc. When, when they, they were very small companies, like maybe a few people, a few dozen people, etc. Um, and so we were in a lot of cases, Plaid being a fintech, we were working with other fintechs, right? As, the, as this kind of new wave of financial app was actually coming out. But then a really big shift happened in the course of, around like sort of 2019, 2020, um, when the banks themselves actually started coming to us and saying, hey, you know, while we've got some of the data that we need to do the things that we need to do, we actually don't have it all. And we actually need your help to go get accessibility for that data. Like we can actually provide better products and better services because Plaid, you can help us go get other unique data out of the financial system that we can't even get ourselves, nor do we have the capacity to get it. Um, And then we've got this kind of third wave of clients who we get to work with today, who I put in the kind of, they're not fintechs and they're not financial institutions, but they're kind of core technology companies. Um, So we work with someone like Tesla and what we help them do with that data is to make a decision about whether they would um, want to lend money to someone for the purchase of, of that vehicle and then also to set up the recurring payments to essentially pay off that vehicle as well. So like, what, what they've actually realized is, hey, we've got a product in a vehicle, but there's also this entire service layer, this financial services layer that needs to wrap around the outside of that. And so now, again, as I said, we get to work with fintechs, financial services companies and general technology companies who want to incorporate this data into the product experience that they're creating. We're certainly in, a, in an age when everyone kind of wants to understand how their data has been used. And, and I know, I think I know in Australia, they use like my health records, so we can kind of keep a lot more of a closer eye on all of our records and data in that respect. What, what, is, what is your approach, I guess, going out of the US? Because I, I feel like I, I mean, I live in Singapore. We're incredibly, as they say, in an innovative comp- uh, country with, 
you know, technology at our fingertips for everything. And I would say that our banks, especially DBS, the, the local Singapore bank, is super, I mean, super tech savvy uh, in, my, in my understanding of what banks are like. So what does that mean for kind of going out of the US? Yeah, um, good question. Yeah. And look, so uh, the good thing is like we're already outside of the US today. We've got offices in um, uh, Canada, uh, the UK, Europe, we've uh, got a, a location in Amsterdam. And I think what's been interesting for us to see over like the last um, few years is there's continued to be a really, a really deep appreciation, right, for accessibility of financial data, no, no matter where it is. Um, and, and I think, you know, what, what we're really focused on is like, hey, where are the places that we can best help and we can best impact accessibility to that data um and i think what what we've seen kind of unfold over like the last sort of five or so years is there's a lot of different approaches to this globally um the us as it typically does take a fairly free market approach to this kind of stuff which is hey like the, the industry or industries that kind of wrap around that will um, go off and define the way that accessibility works. And there's both challenges and opportunities that exist there. Uh, you've got places like the UK and the European Union that actually went out and kind of defined clear legislation around this stuff, saying like literally like, like this, is a, this is a legal doctrine this, this, and this is going to be regulated, that like accessibility will, will uh, be made to this data. And so what, what we're watching unfold, we see this in Australia now as well, is like just a real intent behind having consumers have that accessibility to that data, which is really cool. And I think, number one, I think we see innovation happening where that's been defined as important. And I think we're, we're now getting away from the point of anyone questioning whether it's important for consumers to have that level of accessibility. The question then becomes like, how will people get access to that data? Um, and then what also then happens from an innovation perspective? And I think, you know, what um, has been really fun and interesting to see here in the U.S., right? We, we think about like the venture capital community and, and things like that here, which really drives innovation. And so innovation thrives here. Um, it, it, it spawned you know, thousands and thousands of applications. And I think we're going to continue to see that trend kind of all across the world. You know, like we continue to hear from our clients all the time, like, hey, we're thinking about my, you know, we're thinking about, um, uh, you know, providing this app into um, Canada, or into Europe. We're certainly hearing Australia. We're certainly hearing Asia Pacific a heck of a lot more, which is really great to see. Uh, and so, in a lot of cases, you can follow the financial data, but you can also just follow um, the innovation. And like that, and that, that for me, I think is one of the most fun and interesting things about what I get to do every day is I get to see the cross section of that happening. That's 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 my job, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a huge trend towards giving consumers access to all of the information, all of that data layer. And it seems like you know when you first asked that question, it, it was a really good question because you start thinking about oh yeah, you got the EU, they got their own regulations, and then there's going to be other countries with their regulations, and then. But as you start to think about it, if you're the number one provider of extracting the data and segmenting it and securing it, how much more could you possibly offer to any government regulation? If you've captured everything and giving it to them, you basically can't do any more than, than that because you can't create data that doesn't exist unless you're not 
already extracting it. And I would say that was where your company would have a better opportunity. And it's probably why banks have never expanded beyond their own borders because they're not agile enough to adapt to other countries' regulations. Yeah, there's, there's the lack of agility. Look, I think that there's also just such a massive opportunity for the banks themselves to continue to provide services, right? And like they're going to be thinking about yeah. what, what's also best for, for, for their own client and, and their own, own customer in the mix as well. They're also making truckloads of money. They, don't, even during uh, during the last few years, like I'm not seeing banks not making money. Yeah, look, they're and, still and getting record profits. The, 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 again, it, it's it's the system designed well for for those outcomes, right? Um, but I, I think what what's you know you know when when we think about our role and in, in all of that as well, um, there's we. We, we again we stand at a really interesting intersection of all this stuff um, and again places where there's um, low regulation to extremely high regulation and and, and, and everything in between I, I think you know Dave you asked the question of like hey like what else can can you do for those guys I, I think what mm. we've also started to realize now um, is that um, there's not just one source anymore of financial data and, and this has actually been one of the big kind of paradigm shifts that have happened in like the last couple of years is with the growth and um, explosion in the number of financial apps that are actually out there, there's a new superset of financial data that doesn't come from the traditional financial institution, but it's still massively important um, for the financial system. And it's massively important for the consumer, right? Because like, if you think now about you know, uh, you know, building someone's financial picture, you know, how would you do that before? You would do that from uh, the traditional bank that they were with and maybe the stock um, and the securities that they held at that traditional bank. But you can't do that anymore, right? When you think about, you know, understanding someone's total financial picture, and I'll, like, I'll talk about my own, right? I bank with Wells Fargo. Um, I've got a stock trading app in Robinhood, um, uh, uh, E-Trade, uh, Charles Schwab. Um, I've got my 401k um, with someone else as well. Um, I've got a um, investing app uh, called Acorns that I kind of do roundup savings in. I've got a roundup savings app for both of my daughters today as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when you th- when you think about trying to build the financial picture for myself, so like these other apps so that my data that sits inside Robinhood, my data that sits inside Coinbase, my data that sits inside um, Acorns, all of that now is, is also part of my financial picture. And so one of the things that we also now focus on is accessibility of all of that incremental financial data um, that's actually important to the financial system as well. And it, and, it, and it not being about a one-way pull just from the banks, but it's how do we create an entire financial ecosystem of that data? And that that's a really big part of like what our role now is to play at Plat. Yes, naturally. And so so what's next? What what's what's actually no, tell me this instead. I don't want to know what next. That's coming later on. What's your biggest challenge? Oh. Apart from apart from trying to explain to people your accent. Cause mate. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm gonna tell you. You've been out of Perth too long and it's confusing. It's it's changed a bit. It's morphed a lot. 
<laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, my, my wife constantly tells me that I need to sound more Australian, which I actually don't really know what that means anymore, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep trying. Think you, you just got to not think about what you're saying. Everyone in Singapore thinks I sound British because they think all you're Australians educated? sound Bogan. Because I'm what? Because you're educated. <laughs> um, yeah. You can't publish well, that. <laughs> oh, we definitely can. Um, <laughs> we've all got so far only because of our accent. That, yeah. That it's... It's a uniqueness that somehow brand Australia, people think we're smart. When are they going to catch on to the fact Dave, that we have no idea what we're doing? We shouldn't be talking about it now. People might actually start to catch on. We'll definitely have to edit this part because if everyone finds out Australians aren't that smart, what, what's the point? We're just This is the career-limiting thing for all Australians all around right now. They're going to hear this and go, oh, my God, that's it. I can't believe we've employed these Australians. They're complete lunatics. So you're you're growing, you're hiring, you're in an exciting fintech disruptive space. Are you excited about what happens next? Yeah, look, I, I think again we touched on no, no, like uh, no. I think one of the one of the cool things is like we just sit at this intersection, right, of of, of technology here, and what. What, what happens by sitting at the intersection of that stuff is that you just continue to see new companies thinking about solving problems in different ways all the time. Um, and, it, and it's honestly, it's what keeps me so interested and in love with like what I get to do every day because I, I get to sort of swat into these companies for a little period of time and learn about the very specific problem that they're trying to solve and how they're thinking about solving it. And, and sometimes, look, whether we're the right company to help them solve part of that problem or not, like sometimes we are, sometimes we aren't, and that's totally fine when we're not. But like we get to see this kind of like intersection of technology and innovation all day long. And that part, like despite all the challenges and the things that go on with with you know, leading a company, like it's 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 so much fun. And, and you, you literally wake up looking forward to what you get to work on every day. And honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Never thought of that. That is such a cool. Um, it's a, such a cool thing to do because yeah, you're working with disruptive technologies that are providing new services that improve customer experience, whether it's car brands or it's investment and things like that. And that, I never thought about. Yeah, you provide a service, but you also get an opportunity to meet the people providing the service, and then you get insight into like what they're doing, yeah, how, how they're, they're doing it, why they're doing like, it, like like you know, how you know. Like what have they attempted so far and what worked and what didn't work? And, you know, in a lot of cases, like, hey, like you probably tried all these other things and maybe those things didn't work. And now you think that like we could potentially be a solver or a solution for that. And so we, we get this insight into these companies all the time. Um, and again, you, you get to just meet people who are thinking about the most unique ways to solve problems every day. And it's, and it's cool because that also then pushes you right to like think differently about solving problems and all that kind of stuff and you get to kind of not just bear witness to it but you then get to apply it in the things that you do every day and like that that is that's cool paul absolutely brilliant to uh have you on the podcast it's been a long time since we've caught up physically i'd love to see you soon ellie congratulations on your first podcast Woohoo! but before we go paul 
clapping emoji, gold star for you. Um, you. Before we go, Paul, you got to answer this question. AI will dot, 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 dot. Oh, good question. AI will help drive forward financial innovation. Oh, very good. Oh, that's very good. Very good and deep in thought and I like how you brought it back to your industry. Very sensible <coughs> of you. Great to catch up, mate. Thanks for being on and look forward to catching up in San Francisco sometime Thanks, Ando. Ellie, thanks for the time, Dave. I appreciate it. Thanks. Nice to meet you.